0: Swoon in sleep and awake wearier. As he woke up, Lester Knapp heard the words in the air, as he so often heard poetry, and awake wearier. He was tired to the bone. He would have given anything in the world to turn over, bury his face in the pillow, and swoon to sleep again, and never wake up. But the alarm clock had rung. And Evangeline had risen instantly. He heard her splashing in the bathroom now. With an effort, as though he were struggling out of smothering black depths, he sat up and swung his feet over the edge of the bed. Gosh, how little good he seemed to get from his sleep! He was tireder when he woke up than when he went to bed. On the cot opposite, little Stephen lay sleeping as vigorously as he did everything one tightly-clenched small fist flung up on his pillow. What a strong, handsome kid he was! Whatever could be the matter with him to make him act so like the devil? Strange to see a little kid like that, so hateful, seeming to take such a satisfaction in raising hell. Well, there was the furnace-fire to fix. He thrust his feet into slippers put his dressing gown over his pajamas, and shuffled downstairs, hearing behind him the firm regular step of Evangeline as she went from the bathroom to the bedroom. On the way down, he woke up enough to realize what made life look so especially intolerable that morning—the return of Jerome Willing, and his own definite failure to make good in the new organization of the store. The significance of that, and all that it foretold, stood out more harshly than ever, in the pale dawn-gray of the cold, empty kitchen. Oh, hell! He flung open the cellar door and ran downstairs to run away from the thought. But it was waiting for him, blackly in the coal bin, luridly in the firebox. It looks just about like the jumping-off place for me, he thought. "'rattling the furnace shaker gloomily. "'Only I can't jump. "'Where to?' "'Well, anyhow, in the few minutes before breakfast, "'while his stomach was empty, "'he was free from that dull, leaden mass of misery "'turning over and over inside him at intervals, "'which was the usual accompaniment of his every waking hour. "'That was something to be thankful for.' He strained his lean arms to throw the coal from his shovel well back into the firebox, and leveled it evenly with the long poker. Evangeline always found time to go down to see if he had done it right before he got away after breakfast. Then he stood for a moment, struck, as he often was, by the leaping many-tongued fury of the little pale blue pointed flames. He looked at them, fascinated by the baleful lustfulness of their attack on the helpless lumps of coal thrown into their inferno. The seat of desolation, void of light, save what the glimmering of those livid flames casts, pale and dreadful. Yet from those flames no light, but rather darkness visible, serves only to discover sights of woe. He heard the words crackle in the flames. He said to himself gravely, Sights of woe, it surely is. He heard Evangeline begin to rattle the shaker of the kitchen stove and started from his hypnotized stare at the flames. It was time for him to beat it back upstairs if he didn't want to be late. How he loathed his lifelong slavery to the clock that pervasive, intimate negative opposed to every spontaneous impulse. It's the clock that is the naysayer to life, he thought, as he climbed the cellar stairs. He hurried upstairs, dressed, and began to shave. In the midst of this last operation, he heard lagging, soft little footsteps come into the bathroom behind him, and beyond his own lathered face in the glass, he saw Stephen enter, Unconscious of observation, the little boy was gazing absently out of the window at the snow-covered branches of the maple tree. His father was so much surprised by the expression of that round baby face, and so much interested in it, that he stopped shaving, his razor in the air, peering at his little son through the glass darkly. Stephen was looking wistful. Yes, he was. Wistful and appealing. Wasn't his lower lip quivering a little, as though... Stephen caught his father's eye on him and started in surprise at being seen by somebody whose back was towards him. "'Hello there, Stevie,' said his father in an inviting tone. "'How's the old man today?' Yes, Stephen's lower lip was quivering. He came closer now and stood looking up earnestly into the soapy face of his father. "'Say, Father,' he began, "'you know, my teddy bear, you know how—' "'From below came a clear, restrained voice, stating dispassionately, "'Lester, you have only twelve minutes before it's time to leave the house.' "'And then, rebukingly, "Stephen, you mustn't bother Father in the mornings when he has to hurry, so "'either go back to bed this minute and keep warm, or get dressed at once. "'You'll take cold standing around in your pajamas.' The tone was reasonable, the logic unanswerable. But unlike Henry, Stephen did not shrink to smaller proportions under the reason and the logic. With the first sound of his mother's voice, his usual square-jawed, pugnacious little mask had dropped over his face. "'I'll get dressed when I get good and weddy, he announced loudly and belligerently, refreshed by his night's sleep and instantly ready to raise an issue and fight it out. Stephen. "'came from below in awful tones. "'Steven sauntered away back to the bedroom "'with ostentatious leisureliness, "'his face black and scowling. "'Mother had once more stolen Teddy "'away from him during the night. "'Lester finished shaving "'in three or four swipes of his razor, "'put on his collar at top speed, "'and tied his necktie as he ran downstairs, "'cursing the clock and all its works under his breath.' Stephen had been on the point of saying something to him. Something human. Stephen, who never asked a question or made an advance towards anyone. Stephen, who lived in a state of moral siege, making sorties from his stronghold only to harry the enemy. And the accursed matter of punctuality had once more frozen out a human relationship. He never had time to know his children to stalk and catch that exquisitely elusive bird of paradise, their confidence. Lester had long ago given up any hope of having time enough to do other things that seemed worthwhile. To read the books he liked, to meditate, to try to understand anything. But it did seem that in the matter of his own children... I didn't think you'd need your overshoes this morning, Lester. I didn't get them out, but if you think you would better... "'Oh, no, no, dear, I won't. I hate them anyhow.' His breakfast, perfectly cooked and served, steamed on the white tablecloth. What a wonder of competence Eva was. Only it was a pity she let the children get on her nerves so. Lester never doubted that his wife loved her children with all the passion of her fiery heart, but there were times when it occurred to him that she did not like them very well. Not for long at a time, anyhow.' But like everything else, that was probably his fault because she had all the drudgery of the care of them, because she never had a rest from them, because he had not been able to make money enough. Everything came back to that. He gulped down his hot, clear coffee and tore at his well-made toast, thinking that he was just about a dead loss any way you looked at it. Not only had he no money to give his children, but no health either. That was another reason why Eva was so worn and took life so hard. He had given her sickly children, all but Stephen, and Stephen had other ways of wearing on his mother. Poor little Henry, how sick he had been last night. It was damnable that the poor kid should have inherited from his good-for-nothing father the curse of a weak digestion, which made life not worth living, that and many other things. He snatched his watch, relentless inquisitor, from the table beside his plate, thrust it into his pocket, and jumped up to put on his overcoat and hat. "'Here are your gloves,' said his wife, holding them out to him. There was a hole in the finger. I've just mended it.' "'Oh, that's awfully good of you, Evie,' said Lester, kissing her cheek, and feeling another ton of never-to-be-redeemed indebtedness flung on his shoulders. He felt them bend weakly under it, like a candle in an overheated room. "'Don't forget your soda mints,' said Evangeline. Gee, it wasn't likely he would forget them, with that hideous demon of dull discomfort getting to work the instant he swallowed food. Henry and Helen, half-dressed, came hurrying down the stairs to see him before he disappeared for the day. His heart yearned over them, their impressionable, delicate faces. "'their shadowed eyes, the shrinking carriage of their slim little bodies. Goodbye, father,' they said, lifting their sweet children's lips to his. "'The poor kids! What business had he to pass on the curse of existence "'to other human beings, too sensitive and frail to find it anything but a doom? "'He tried to say, "Goodbye, there, young ones,' as he kissed them, "'but the words could not pass the knot in his throat.' He saw Eva start up the stairs, and, knowing that she was going to have it out with Stephen, crammed his hat on his head and ran. But not fast enough. As he fled down the porch steps, he heard a combative, angry roar. Helen and Henry would eat their breakfast to a cheerful tune. And then another scream, more furious, on a higher note. Hell and damnation, there must be something wrong with the way that kid was treated to make life one perpetual warfare. But his father was as helpless to intervene as if he were bound and gagged. Well, he was bound and gagged to complete helplessness about everything in his life and his children's lives. Bound and gagged by his inability to make money. Only men who made money had any right to say how things should go in their homes. A man who couldn't make money had no rights of any kind which a white man was bound to respect, nor a white woman either, especially a white woman. The opinion of a man who couldn't make money was of no value on any subject in anybody's eyes. The dignity of a man who could not make money—but why talk about non-existent abstractions? He had about as much dignity left him as a zero with the rim off. His after-breakfast dyspepsia began to roll crushingly over his personality, as it always did for a couple of hours after each meal. His vitality began to ebb. He felt the familiar terrible draining out of his will to live. At the thought of enduring this demoralizing torment that morning and that afternoon, and the day after that, and the day after that, he felt like flinging himself on the ground rolling and shrieking. Instead, he pulled out his watch with the employee's nervous gesture and quickened his pace. He was just then passing Dr. Merritt's office. If only there was something the doctor could do to help him. But he had tried everything. And anyhow, he understood perfectly that a man who doesn't make money has no right to complain of dyspepsia, of anything. Illness only adds to his guilt. He put a soda mint in his mouth, turned a corner, and saw, down the street, the four story brick front of Willing's Emporium. Was it possible that a human being could hate anything as he hated that sight and not drop dead of it? Before this new phase, it had been bad enough. All those years when it had been a stagnant pool of sour, slow intrigue and backbiting, carried on by sour, slow, small minded people, all playing in their different ways on the small-minded, sick old man at the head of it. Lester had always felt that he would rather die than either join in those intrigues or combat them. This aloofness, added to his real incapacity for business, had left him still nailed to the same high stool in the same office which had received him the day he had first gone in. That first day when, vibrant with the excitement of his engagement to that flame-like girl, he had left his university classes and all his plans for the future and rushed out to find work, any work that would enable him to marry. Well, he had married. That had been only 13 years ago. The time before it seemed to Lester as remote as the age of Ramses. He had hated the slow regime of the sick, small-minded old man, But he hated still more this new regime, which was anything but slow. He detested the very energy and forcefulness with which Jerome Willing was realizing his ideals, because he detested those ideals. Lester felt that he knew what those ideals were, what lay behind those pep talks to the employees. Jerome Willing's notion of being a good businessman was to stalk the women of his region as a hunter stalks unsuspecting game to learn how to catch them unawares and how to play for his own purposes on a weakness of theirs only too tragically exaggerated already their love of buying things. Jerome Willing's business ideal, as Lester saw it, was to seize upon one of the lower human instincts the desire for material possessions, to feed it, to inflame it, to stimulate it, till it should take on the monstrous proportions of a universal monomania, a city full of women whose daily occupation would be buying things and things and more things yet, the things Jerome Willing had to sell, be it understood. That was Jerome Willing's vision of good business. And to realize this vision, he joyfully and zestfully bent all the very considerable powers of his well-developed personality. Lester Knapp, the barely-tolerated clerk, hurrying humbly down the street to take up his small, drudging task, gazed at that life-purpose as he had gazed at the lurid, baleful energy of the coal flames half an hour before. Lester did not so much mind the way this subtly-injected poison ate into the fibers of childless women. They might, for all he cared, let their insane hankering for a cloak with the new sleeves force them to put blood money into buying it, and allow their drugged desire for such imbecile things to wall them in from the bright world of impersonal lasting satisfactions, they hurt nobody but themselves, if the Jerome Willings of the world were smart enough to make fools of them so much the worse for them. Although the spectacle was hardly an enlivening one for a dyspeptic man forced to pass his life in contact with it, but what sickened Lester was the unscrupulous exploitation of the homemaking necessity, the adroit perversion of the homemaking instinct. Jerome Willing wanted to make it appear, hammering in the idea with all the ingenious variations of his advertising copy, that homemaking had its beginning and end in good furniture, fine table linen, expensive rugs. God! How about keeping alive some intellectual or spiritual passion in the home? How about the children? Did anybody suggest to women that they give to understanding their children a tenth part of the time and real intelligence and real purposefulness they put into getting the right clothes for them? A tenth, a hundredth! The living, miraculous, infinitely fragile fabric of the little human souls they lived with Did they treat that with the care and deft-handed patience they gave to their fillet-ornamented table linen? No, they wrung it out hard and hung it up to dry, as they did their dishcloths. And, of course, what Jerome Willing wanted of every employee was to join with all his heart in this conspiracy to force women still more helplessly into this slavery to possessions. Anyone who could trick a hapless woman into buying one more thing she had not dreamed of taking— He was the hero of the new regime. That was what Jerome Willing meant when he talked about making good. Making good what? Not good human beings. That was the last thing anybody was to think of. And as to trying to draw out from children any greatness of soul that might lie hidden under their immaturity. You're late again, Mr. Knapp, said Harvey Bronson's voice, rejoicing in the accusation. Lester Knapp acknowledged his three-minute crime by a nervous start of astonishment and then by a fatigued nod of his head. All the swelling fabric of his thoughts fell in a sodden heap, amounting to nothing at all, as usual. He hung up his coat and hat and sat down on the same old stool. He was no good, that was the matter with him, the whole matter. He was just no good at all for anything. What right had he to criticize anybody at all when anybody at all amounted to more than he? He was a man who couldn't get on in business, who couldn't even get to his work on time. He must have been standing on the sidewalk outside, not knowing where he was, lost in that hot sympathy with childhood. But nine o'clock is not the time to feel sympathy with anything. Nine o'clock is sacred to the manipulation of a card catalogue of customers' bills. The spiked ball within him gave another lurch and tore at his vitals. Lord, how sick of life that dyspepsia made you! It took the very heart out of you, so that, like a man on the rack, you were willing to admit anything your accusers asserted. He admitted thus what everybody tacitly asserted, that the trouble was all with him, with his weakness with his feeble vitality, with his futile disgusts at the organization of the world he lived in, with his unmanly failure to seize other men by the throat and force out of them the things his family needed. Sympathy for childhood, nothing. If he felt any real sympathy for his own children, he'd somehow get more money to give them. What were fathers for if not for that? If he were a man among men, he would do as other manly men did use his wits to force the mothers of other children to spend more money than they ought on material possessions, and thus have that money to spend in giving more material possessions to his own. And even the bitter way he phrased his surrender, yes, he knew everybody would say that it was a weak man's sour-grapes denunciation of what he was not strong enough to get. And they would be right, it was. He bent his long, lean, sallow face over the desk, looking disdainful and bad-tempered, as he always did when he was especially wretched and unhappy. Harvey Bronson glanced at him and thought, what a lemon to have around. He'd sour the milk by looking at it. Presently, as often happened to Lester, a lovely thing bloomed there, silent, unseen. Through the crazy, rhythmless chatter of the typewriters in the office, through the endless items on the endless bills, he heard it coming, as from a great distance, on radiant feet. It was only rhythm at first. Divine ordered rhythm, putting to flight the senseless confusion of what lay about him. And then there glowed before him the glory of the words, the breathtaking upward lift of the first one, the sonorous cadences of the lines that followed, the majestic march of the end. Soaring through wider zones that pricked his scars with memory of the old revolt from awe, he reached a middle height, and at the stars which are the brain of heaven he looked and sank. Around the ancient track marched rank on rank THE ARMY OF UNALTERABLE LAW Lester Knapp's heart swelled, shone bright, escaped out of its misery, felt itself one with the greatness of the whole. The words kept singing themselves in his ear. He looked and sank, marched rank on rank, THE ARMY OF UNALTERABLE LAW. The weighty iron clang of that one-syllabled word at the end gave him a sensation of an ultimate strength somewhere. He leaned on that strength and drew a long, free breath. His lean, sallow face was lighted from within and shone. He leaned far over his desk to hide this. He tried to think of something else, to put away from him this unmerited beauty and greatness. A man who is a failure in a business office ought not for an instant to forget his failure. The least he can do is to be conscious of his humiliation at all times. But in spite of himself, his lips were curved in a sweet, happy smile. Harvey Bronson glanced at him and felt irritated and aggrieved by his expression. What call has a dead loss like Lester Knapp got to be looking so doggone satisfied with himself, he thought.